is summer. You know what that means. Sprinklers are buzzing, popsicles are melting, and the Consumed Podcast is on your speakers for that road trip you've dreamed of taking. This is the show that features conversations with eaters, thinkers, drinkers, and makers on California's Central Coast. And I am your host, Jamie Lewis. Thanks for letting me tag along. Before we start, I want to tell you a little bit about some of the sponsors of the Consumed Podcast. We all know eating fruits and veggies is an important part of staying healthy. Fresh, local produce has the most flavor and nutrition, but how do you know what's in season locally? Become part of the Tally community as a member of the Tally Farms Box Program. Tally grows their produce and partners with other California farmers to include the freshest and best-tasting local produce you can find anywhere. Farming on the Central Coast since 1948, the Tally family created the Tally Farms Box to make healthy eating easy and affordable. Here's how it works. Select which size box you want, then choose pickup or home delivery and how often you want to get your box. It's flexible for customization and vacation holds, and included in all boxes are tested recipes and storage recommendations. Come be a part of Tally's healthy lifestyle. Visit tallyfarmsbox.com and use promo code CONSUMED for $10 off your first box. That's promo code CONSUMED for $10 off. Eat fresh, eat local, and eat lots of California fruits and veggies for better health. I recently spoke with Santa Barbara County wine veteran Wes Hagen in his new capacity as brand ambassador for Rancho Steanaveros Wines. He said the winery has started defining itself as deliberate, historic, and sublime, which if you've ever tasted Rancho Steanaveros wines, you will understand. Owner James Onaveros planted his vineyard with his own two hands after school and on weekends while studying at Cal Poly. All he had was his belief in the Santa Maria Valley, an eight-acre patch of mineral-stripped land, and his name. Turns out that was more than enough to produce some of the most elegant Pinot Noir in California. Today, winemaker Justin Willett makes RDO's Pinot Noir, as well as elegant Santa Maria Valley Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon from the San Inez Valley. Call Wes Hagen for a private tasting with one of Wine and Spirits magazine's top 100 wineries in the world for 2021. Reach him at Wes at RanchoSteanaveros.com or 805-450-2324. Okay, on to the episode. Matt Trevisan is the winemaker and owner at Lenny Colotto Winery in Paso Robles, California. Along with his wife, Maureen, he has built the Willow Creek District Winery into a really special producer of Rhone varietal blends and Zinfandel wines. And they've been at it for 25 years, constantly tweaking their process and pulling at the thread of what kind of winery and business they want to be. Over those years, Matt has been especially interested in pursuing a nature-positive model, one that forces farmers and winemakers to live within the bounds of their land's natural resources and rely on natural solutions and manual labor rather than chemicals and carbon-burning machines. That's actually a quote from Matt himself and one worth mulling over in depth. Aside from wine, we discussed his obsession with flying, car racing with KCBX DJ Neil Losey, and the concept of learn by failing. Here's Matt Trevisan. Matt Trevisan, am I saying that right? Yep. Okay, so we were just talking about COVID because your poor daughter has it right now at UCSB, and she's in a sorority, and 10 of the girls have it. Yep. 
which is just, it's, it's crazy that we're still, remember when we would talk about it and we'd be like, did you know so-and-so has COVID? Yeah, <laughs> now it's <I> like, <laughs> are I you know. on your second or third round? It's the coronavirus. It's common cold. Yeah. But, right. You know, but it is different too. Yes. So, well, you were saying that you, you had benefits. COVID gave you actually benefits with being home with your three kids. I thought it did. I thought that, um, you know, time was passing by with between sports and, and mm-hmm. school and all the out, uh, extracurricular activities that uh, we had this opportunity to have everyone at home while 100% of farming operations were going on and gardening. And, right. and so um, to get them out of, uh, you know, Zoom and get them out of the mm-hmm. house to be able to come out and and uh, join in the work in the vineyard. I thought it was really a great time to see all the different aspects from, from weeding, you know, mm-hmm. and prepping the land and soil to, to, uh, shoot thinning, fruit thinning, mm-hmm. harvesting. Your crew, um, gained a couple extra, well, couple extra people. Funny enough, there was a period where my whole crew was quarantined because oh. this is early COVID yeah. where, where the county was quarantining a whole crew. So if one crew member got sick, no one was allowed to show up to work. And well, Mother Nature continues, yeah, right? right, and right. It's not farming, doesn't just stop. So we had to keep moving. And, and everything's a time time process of you know when you have to fruit then, when you shoot then. Yeah, you don't get to pick. No, you when. can't just wait two extra weeks always because and, and, you're never going to get through the project. Mm-hmm. And the projects usually take words of four, four weeks to, to six weeks, depending on how big the crew is running through. So it was great. Mm-hmm. The whole family stepped in and they don't know what they've learned, but <laughs> I, I look at it as one of those things where the jobs that you've done in the past, you may not fully recognize what you're doing at the time, mm-hmm. but later on one day you go, Oh, mm-hmm. that's, well, that's cool. parenting too. I mean, I, I know since you're a parent, and somebody, I think, probably parented you. You know that stuff. It, there's a feedback loop there for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, there is. There is. I mean, from all the times when I was younger and weed whacking and mowing lawns, and <laughs> and my dad would come out and tell me that hey, that's a holiday there. You know, it's where you miss the cutting the grass in a spot. And that's and called whack. a holiday. Yeah, it's called a holiday. <laughs> my dad would tell us that we we took a holiday there. And oh my and, gosh, you know, to this day, it's the same sort of uh, work ethic where you're working on grapevines and you got to kind of be really thorough and mm-hmm. and detailed and and give each the same amount of care to each vine yeah. as you move up a vineyard row. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, my my dad, my job was sweeping the back patio with a big. Um, a huge, I don't remember what you call it. What's the, a push broom. broom. And, um, yeah, he's very exacting. And I thought it was ridiculous. I was probably tired from partying the night before Friday night. And Saturday was when I had to clean the back patio. And I just remember feeling like he is going to comment on every little leaf that I leave behind because I had left some behind, and now I'm so persnickety about that kind of thing. Get all the leaves, all of them out. That's so funny, because uh, my first winemaking job was at Justin Winery, and I showed up oh. a couple hours early. Because uh, <laughs> you misjudged that giant drive. Yeah, why. <laughs> yeah exactly. And, and the first thing Justin Baldwin handed me was a broom. And for oh, two hours, yeah. I swept with a push broom, and... And uh, luckily, as a kid, my dad would have us clean the garage every yeah. every weekend and pull everything out and sweep every corner. And he would in- inspect it as if you know he was in the navy. And it was like, <laughs> I was, so it was. I was. Re- it was really quick for me. And today, even when I have new interns, a lot of times they'll be straight straight out of college, but I'll give them a broom. 
Yeah. And it's kind of amazing how many times they don't know how to sweep. And isn't that, I mean, if you want to get into winemaking, there's a lot of sweeping and a lot of washing, right? There's yeah. a lot of all that stuff. Yeah, we say 90% cleaning, 5% art, 5% science. Yeah, you're not just sitting drinking all day. No. Not that that's what they think, but but it's really unsexy a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so where did you grow up? Where where did you grow up doing little holidays in the grass? I grew up in Escondido, Southern California, oh, okay. so San Diego County, mm-hmm. and I came to school at Cal Poly when I was 18. What did you think you wanted to do here? I originally started in aeronautical engineering at Cal Poly and, wow. and thought I wanted to you know build airplanes and design airplanes and mm-hmm. A couple of years of uh, going through the program, doing all the math and, and physics and CAD design, some of the early uh, aero classes, kind of, uh, I wasn't socially fit for aero, for being an aeronautical engineer. And why do you say? I just, um, I didn't necessarily fit in with that group as much. And during that time, I, I became a DJ at KCPR. <gasps> KCPR! And, yeah. Yay! I still listen. Yeah. Yeah. And and met a lot of great friends through KCPR and, and kind of looked at my options of what other majors I could do. And Mm -hmm. with all the math and physics that I had taken, it led me to biochemistry. Okay. So, and then I was, I was all in, I, I might have a little OCD sometimes that, you know, once I commit to something, I really want to learn it. And, Mm -hmm. and chemistry was a great, avenue for me yeah Uh, really enjoyed learning about organic chemistry and Mm -hmm. biochemistry and metabolism and still didn't know what i wanted to do i mean i was sure but but i mean that's you were telling me before we started rolling that your daughter's studying chemistry at ucsb so there must be something there do you guys do you find yourselves to be somewhat similar we are. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But th- I have a lot of respect for people who get excited about that because it's the building blocks, right? Of everything. It is. It yeah. is everything. And mm-hmm. um, everything starts with chemistry. It's kind, yeah. of, it's kind of wild when you look at the world and, and every object around us, every every living, living being is made up of chemistry. And right. it uh, leads you to um, how you see the world. Mm. And kind of trying to teach it a lot of times. I feel like yeah, to I explain it, how it actually functions in this other level. And mm. some believe it, some have no ideas and <laughs> <laughs> feel a little frustrating sometimes. <laughs> well, so wait, I want to ask you about KCPR. So what was your, did you have your own show? I did the morning show, uh, yeah. just like a night. It was, I think 9am to 11am or something like that. Okay. I only, I, I originally, uh, my mentor is Mike Funk and mm. I, great name, uh, Neil, Neil Losey. Neil Losey also yeah. works at Lene Coloto. Yeah. Oh, he does. Yep. 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 Doing yep. what? He's my assistant and the at uh, making wine. And and when he's not on KCBX and not racing cars, he's at Lene Coloto oftentimes. Where, how does he have that time? I don't understand it. He doesn't sleep. <laughs> and his show on KC. So we're talking about Neil Losey has um, Morning Cup on ninety point one KCBX. It's a great show. I've always loved, and Neil, at, we worked together at Boo Boo's, uh. and Neil was so gracious. At one time, my son was, actually both kids were kind of talking about what would it be like to have a radio show, and so much music on the radio now is not actually connected to a live local DJ, 
So I wanted them to see Neil in the studio. And so I asked him, can I bring him? And he said, yes. And we sat and he talked about them on the air and it was so, they were pretty little. Yeah. Anyway, Neil, such an amazing man, but between cars and that show, and you know, he does his homework for that show. Oh yeah. And does he still DJ at KCPR sometimes too? I don't know if he's involved with okay. uh, KCPR as much anymore. Okay. So, but then he's your assistant in the, like he's on the website. He's your like, assistant winemaker or he's no, like no, your no. helper? Neil, Neil's, Neil's my harvest assistant. So, so that's primarily when he comes in. So it started about, I think eight years ago now, could mm. be seven. And I, uh, and he might correct me. It's nine. <laughs> <laughs> so we ran into each other at, uh, at live Oak music fest every year. And then, and then we're talking and he said he wanted to come up and, and check out the winery and, and he began showing up at like two o'clock at the winery after his morning cup show. Oh my gosh. And we just talked all the time and, and I was teaching him to make wine and I would, you know, give him a tank to, to ferment and, mm. and listen and smell and, and, mm. and do the pump overs and punch downs on. And, and he really gravitated towards mm. it. And that's, uh, that's about when he also told me that he had to go to a race. And I looked at, you know, and Is said, that the first time I said, you're not, what type of race are you doing? I don't think you're, I don't think you're running a race. And he told me about his, uh, his, uh, fascination with, with racing cars, not uh, just racing cars, but racing, really crappy cars, uh, racing, really crappy <laughs> lemons. And, Lemon. and later that year, he invited me to, to race in, in one of the chump car series oh, races. Yeah, yeah. So chumps, we're a bunch of chumps driving old, old cars that are stripped out. And, and was it at Laguna Seca? It was Laguna Seca. <laughs> I raced a, I raced a, a POS, a piece of shit, uh, Honda, Honda, uh, what was it? CR, what are they called? CRXs. CRX, the low to the ground hatchback. Yep, yep. I spun it down the corkscrew. <laughs> did, a, did a full 360 down the corkscrew and then, then proceeded to spin it also two turns later on an oil slick from another car and kind of, kind of parallel parked it in between two other cars that were off the track and I had love a lot it. of. A lot of good memories, and after that race, I I I know we were kind of departing on that whole the, the, where we were at before. But no, this uh, af- after that, I I decided to build a race car team with Neil. Oh my gosh! And we built uh, two two teams eventually, uh, and driving BMWs that I would strip and cage them, and and yeah. then I was the I was the mechanic. Why'd you choose BMWs? Uh, because they won that w- the first race got I went it. to. I okay. saw it's proven uh, a proven yeah. winner. Yeah, so I said, "Oh, we got to go find a, a BMW a 325i yes. and from the 80s, and yeah. we will the little guy. We will drive it. It's like driving a go kart. So yeah. I found them and and we tore them apart and put them back together and built a, a race car team. Yeah, uh, four drivers usually endurance racing, and it was super fun. It was a lot of work, but it was a ton of fun too. And Talk up the one team's name was OCD racing. <laughs> I'm hearing OCD, I'm hearing CRX, and I'm hearing POS. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> we had it all. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was a good time. That's so funny though, because I'm looking at your just beautiful car outside, yeah, behind my POS. Actually, I, you know what, actually, my car, I love my car. That little turbo Volvo yeah. is really fun. Oh, they're great cars. Super fun. But you are a car guy, I take it. 
or a thing, things that fly, things that well, things move. that I'm a things that fly guy more yeah. than a, a a car guy. Yeah, the plane uh, thing. I Air, do have. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a plane? I do. Yeah. Do you have a, a landing strip at it? I don't. But okay. My neighbors do, and I don't land there. But if I had to, I would. That's amazing. So, what do you do with this plane? Do you um do you rent it out, or is it all for you? Well, um, these are the hobbies that are outside of of uh, winemaking that I have. And I have to have hobbies yeah. that kind of take me away from, from always being in the barrel room or being on the vineyard and having, uh, lived on a vineyard or at the winery for the, my, my whole, um, Lenny Clito time. It's important to get away yeah. and go somewhere else so I can focus. So what I'm currently doing is flying aerobatics. I have a little, uh, experimental biplane that i've been you know just ripping ripping spins and loops and rolls and learning it's a lot of learning and it's really high precision flying and it's when i was a kid i always wanted to fly Mm. airplanes and then i got my license and learned to fly and can fly instruments and Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of flying is taking off flying straight Mm -hmm. to your destination, maybe making one, two turns, Mm -hmm. very shallow bank turns and landing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of boring. (laughs) Uh, When I'm going to say Austin, Texas, I want it to be very boring. I want it to be extremely boring, but you, you want more than that. When you travel, it's yeah, that's how it is. But you know, as a kid seeing Top Gun and, and yes. just uh, watching the Black Sheep Squadron on on reruns and mm. and that was where my my dreams were and, yeah. and reading about flying and any any movie, any documentary I could I could mm. air shows and stuff like that. Yeah. It was uh something that I was passionate about and finally I began flying light aerobatics in one aircraft and it was all momentum based and you mm-hmm. had to put the nose down to get enough airspeed to pull off any maneuver. And then, oh and the, there was no inverted system. So if you hold the plane upside down too long, the engine shuts off and you just have to maintain, you maintain your, your composure and mm-hmm. you do what you have to do to put it back. You seem like somebody who could do like who wouldn't flip out. You would think you would, you know, go back to your training. Yeah, it doesn't give you any time to uh, to flip out. Really, you have to just kind of stay focused, and it doesn't give you time to think about all the other things that are going on in the world. Yeah, when the plane's pointed straight at the ground, it's you have this like you're in the moment. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It's like surfing or any other, uh, you know, uh, yeah. dropping in on a big wave. It's uh, I, I've never dropped on in a big wave, but you know, yeah. to me, what a big wave would be would be eight to ten feet or something back when yeah. I was younger, and that would be huge. Yes, but you know, you have to stay focused and and yeah. uh, and you have to take the leap. Yep, you have to take the risk, which actually dovetails beautifully to owning your own winery. I mean, you have to at some point say, "I'm going to do this. I'm going to spend this money. I'm going to go out on a limb and buy people's insurance for them." And you know, all of that is a big decision. Yeah. How did you come to that decision? And I know your wife is involved very much too. Oh, here. she's yeah, hugely involved. It, it wouldn't operate without yeah. without Maureen. Yeah. I uh, How did I come to that decision? Well, I was a DOF. I was a dork on fork. I was driving forklift, making wine, yeah. growing growing wineries for uh, both 
Justin Winery when mm-hmm. we started there. We were about 5,000 cases and grew to 25,000 cases. Mm-hmm. And I was moving a lot of liquids and it was really fun growing and building buildings and, and that whole expansive phase. I also worked for Kenny Volk at oh, Wild Horse yeah. from 97 to 2001. Mm-hmm. And there's that's really where I uh, gained the moniker of, of being the DOF, the dork on fork. And mm-hmm. I drive forklift like I drive cars or fly planes and I, and I'm, it's precise and fast and, and it's organized as if it's a chemistry stock room. Oh, nice. So, you know, it's very detailed on, on where everything's laid out. It's thought process of what project you're working on today, what you're going to be working on in the future, and then reorganizing every item, whether it's in a case good room mm-hmm. or in a barrel room. So I was spending my wheels doing that. I coming out of poly with the biochemistry, mm-hmm. I uh, I needed. I wasn't, you know, in line to be a winemaker at Wild Horse Winery. I was an assistant winemaker at Justin Winery, but that was all. That was all because I bartered for that. I uh, made a deal for a thousand bucks a month when I started there as an apprentice. Mm-hmm. You know, do any job. Yeah. I tell people I was too cheap to fire. I worked my tail off. I would, yeah. um, when everyone else had gone home, I'd I'd be there and hanging wallpaper with Justin Baldwin mm-hmm. and and learning all the things that an owner did. Mm-hmm. And there was no, you never got to shut down. Really, you had to. Yeah. You're constantly doing something. If even if it didn't look like you were doing anything, you might be on the phone with somebody. Or you yeah. might be sending emails out. Yes, and, sitting and, at a computer and creating the energy that, that the business needs to go to the next level, uh, Mm -hmm. corresponding with everyone. So in, you know, 97, somewhere in there began dreaming of, of starting my own label by 98. uh, We had put together a a game plan in you and Maureen had Maureen actually had given me a book uh, starting on a, on a shoestring. Mm-hmm. This uh, starting a business on a shoestring, and I kind of threw it threw it aside. I was like, "Whatever, I already know what I'm <laughs> going to do here." And as things went, I my college roommate Justin Smith, uh, he was interested in starting a winery also about the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Cherry suggested from Via Creek suggested we put our our uh, minds together and, and partner up. And we did, but as you know, the only ship that doesn't float is a partnership. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? It's a rule of the universe. It's a funny thing. It's like, so in 98, Justin and I uh, combined his family's uh, vineyard, James Berry, and I had the facility at Wild Horse and Kenny Volk had had us write up a business plan Mm. and he looked at our business plan. And once he gave us his blessing, he allowed us to use the facility after hours From 10 o'clock at night till seven in the morning was, was what I proposed to him. And the reason why was because I didn't want to conflict with anybody else working there, even though I could operate all the equipment and it would be easier to probably process our fruit right at the end of processing a wild horse fruit. Mm -hmm. I wanted a clean slate and I wanted everyone else to do their job as they did it and not have to clean up after, after we used it. Mm And so it became this whole kind of dance that we did and, and working late nights processing. It's like gonzo winemaking. That's crazy. It was really, it was great. And I bet it was fun. It did kick any 
custom work that Wild Horse did at the time seemed to get kicked my way. Yeah, yes. Which meant that if uh, someone else uh, that was maybe not a winemaker, but we were processing fruit for them, uh, I would end up having to squeeze their grapes usually, Mm -hmm. press them Mm -hmm. late at night, and kind of add to my... But was that it was the price that you paid for it was getting access it was, but it was yeah. also it was a it was a i mean we wouldn't be here if if uh, if that didn't happen. It was also difficult at the time yeah. when uh you know because Kenny Volk was buying a lot of James Berry fruit, mm-hmm. and as we started, we began to take James Berry fruit back under the Linne Coloto label at the time, and yeah. that was not the easiest thing to um to tell. Mm-mm. Kenny, that hey, you're the fruit that you love, the best fruit in the mm. in the county is is not yeah. yours anymore. At least less of it anyway. Less of it, yeah, yeah. yeah that put me in a weird spot. It yeah. put me. I was, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, a double spy. I don't know what do you want to call it. <laughs> double a, agent. Double agent. Yeah. 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 Well. Ken Volk lives right around the corner. We can go over and talk to him about it. He does. He does. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be here without him. He's and, an amazing man. Yeah. He walks his dog occasionally past the house. And I just I have so much respect for him um, and the way he did things um, and still does. But yeah, that's so funny. There's actually a lot of winemakers on this in this little area. And it's that's, really fun. It's funny. I lived in this neighborhood. Oh, lived, did you really? I lived on Broad Street. Yeah, just down... Oh, yeah. how f- by the deli? Yes, Lincoln yeah. Deli. Yeah, go there all the time. I also lived on Mountain View up there. Yeah, right over here. And so, yeah. Well, Friday nights at Lincoln, you should come sometime after kids or sports or whatever. I mean, Eric Johnson from Tally and Ann Albert is out there with Katie, uh, with Kate, his wife, and then um, Colby Parker Garcia is there. Um, yeah, and then our friend Trevor who owns Bixby Gin, and then you got. Um, Ken Falk over there, and you got Daniel Sinton. It's pretty crazy. It's a pretty high concentration of booze people That's in really this neighborhood, cool. which is awesome. Okay, so you, I kind of want to know, well, you, you've piqued my interest, though. I did know that Justin Smith had something to do with Lenny Coloto at the beginning. Can you just, I mean, for information purposes, tell me how did, how did, what is it like now and how did it change? Oh, we're, we're great friends. It's, yeah. uh, we were young, but he's not in the business. Anymore. No, no. Yeah. Well, he has sex. He, he has he, his he's, own. He's in the he's wine doing business. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He's doing great. Right. And, um, we were in the, you know, it was how we started and we were young and getting our foot in the door. We went out there, we made, we came up with ideas of blending. We were 50, 50 mm-hmm. and, but we both wanted our own facilities. Yeah. We both wanted our own, our families to, to, you know, live on properties mm-hmm. and, and operate. And I knew pretty early on that, you know, in order for me to grow personally, that I had to kind of, you know, spread my wings and yeah, fly from the nest sure. because it would have been really easy for me to be, you know, under under his wing and mm-hmm. and um and it was great and his dad you know his dad gave me pebble smith gave me my first winemaking books and mm-hmm. what really i think happened in the end was just that uh, we both wanted to build facilities on our places yeah. and we didn't know how to how to communicate and i was not very good at communicating mm-hmm. you know just i was i was a young whippersnapper you know just <laughs> trying to get things done and and 
trying to, to move forward and, and not yeah. the best at it. So, well, but, but it makes sense that you would want your family, like you wanted a legacy and the, yeah. the only way you could do that is to have your own. Yeah. And I want to learn farming on my own. Mm-hmm. I wanted, I wanted to learn and it's been a bumpy mm. long road, but it's been great. Yeah. See, it's, it's, you know, following the Cal Poly method of learn by doing, um, I typically push things uh, to to parameters where mm-hmm. where they break, and mm-hmm. then I realize you know that's not going to work, and then I I redo it, <laughs> scale and, it back just a little this time. Yeah, I mean I've been doing that with uh, irrigations, mm-hmm. you know, with minimal irrigations or no irrigation, and seeing how plants react in nature, and and I've had successes and failures mm-hmm. along the way, and. I wouldn't have experienced that. I don't think had I, had we stayed together yeah. as a partnership. How fun that you were college roommates though. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty it's... cool to think of the two of you little guys scheming. Yeah. I wouldn't be in the wine industry without, without uh, Justin inviting, you know, his college friends up to help pick Jamesbury yeah. Vineyard back when the fruit was going to, to Fetzer and when, mm-hmm. when the Moved was going to Alban mm-hmm. and it was like, I would That's not. That's a pretty pristine situation. I mean, he, who wouldn't be interested in winemaking, you know, picking at James Berry, move ed for John Alban. I mean, then yeah. I mean, you, there's just really not anything more romantic or quality than that. It was, it was one of the first experiences I had. We picked Moved uh, from the old block at James Berry and we brought it down in the old Ford, uh, I think it was a Ford, could have been a Chevy Stepside pickup truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, said "Grapes are us" on the license plate, <laughs> and we drove down the old Cuesta grade and mm-hmm. and got down to to Alban's Vineyard, and and hmm. he took that the box of fruit and and threw it on the ground and began to sort it on a on a blue tarp and go through all the clusters, and it was my first experience of of that quality control of mm-hmm. looking at everything and and the detail of winemaking. And, you know, to this day, I still always remind John of that first experience because mm-hmm. I was a kid. No one, I knew nothing at the time. No. And fast forward almost 30 years mm-hmm. and here we are today. Yeah. Yeah. Making excellent stuff. Um, your website, I saw, um, there's a theme there. First of all, it's a gorgeous website. Who did that for you? Uh, that was, it's uh, Makers and Allies. Uh, oh, of course built, it is. Built that up. And then we've been uh, modifying and, yeah. and, and doing a little tricks to it over the last uh, year or so. They make just, all the prettiest just, stuff. Just bringing things together. And, yeah. and it's, a, it's a work in, in progress. Yeah. And I'm always learning. Yeah. Well, and it's, you can tell that it's complex on the backside and those things complex can lead to absolutely gorgeous stuff, but it's also really hard to manage. I know, I know that from experience, but on the website, it talks about, are you experienced, which of course is a Jimi Hendrix um, referral. So what I'm, what I'm wondering is what does that mean to you as a winemaker? How does, are you experienced? And the word experience is on everything with Lenny Colota. What does that mean? It to is. You? Well, it started off uh, when we started our, our, you know, wine club list. It's, it started off as a LC experience mm-hmm. and it was about, it was about uh, learning about wines from the West side of Paso Robles from the Willow Creek district. Now, mm-hmm. now it's known as Willow Creek district. Back then we used to call it, you know, Templeton gap yeah. and, and it was the West side. And we wanted to make regional blends that would take Syrah, Grenache, Moved, uh, any, any grapes that 
you could make these, uh, bring the chemistry together and bring balance and flavors that would represent your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That's the experience that, that we're creating. Mm. What does it mean to, to have it? It means everything from perspectives on farming perspectives on winery operations and just the whole overall look at the, the wine industry as a whole wine industry as a whole for me, it has a lot of great things going for it, but it also has some things that, that, that kind of push it away from, from, from where I see uh, wine should be. And that means both in sustainability and uh, use of chemicals and, and manipulation of the wines. And, and I like to go more old school mm-hmm. if I can say that like yeah. on winemaking techniques and getting, getting wines back to how they were. Uh, maybe, maybe in the 1600s, 1700s. Of course, we understand chemistry way differently yes. today than we than we did now. Yeah. Oh, then, then it's we not did necessarily back then. like a mystery or magic. I mean, it is, it is. But I, I think you, as an organic chemistry guy, you understand the principles and the mechanisms of all of that more than somebody who has no access to a microscope does. Yeah. Yeah. So. Understanding metabolism and and what's going on and listening and smelling and under and and looking for the precursors of of the direction a wine's going in allows you to play with the wines in a different way, a very f- kind of free form way. You're not letting them just become all oxidative. You understand the the interactions of oxygen within within winemaking, and that's what I would say the experience is about. It's about this this follow, follow me along the pathway of learning to grow grapes, learning to process those grapes, blending those grapes and placing them in bottles. And then even watching the, the experience of them aging and, you know, maturing in bottle. I always had a problem when I was younger of this question, how long do these wines age? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could even have Robert Parker coming into you and asking you, Hey, how long do these wines age? Well, when I was 26 years old, that's when I, that's when I started Lene Coloto. Yeah. You know, wow. I'd been making commercial wines for only four years. So you don't know. My benchmarks were from grape to first fermented wine mm-hmm. and what that tasted like. Yeah. Following that, that wine for four years does not give me an idea if it's going to last 10 years or 20 years. Mm-hmm. And today I can look back at it and today I can change the way I make wines. In With, order to, because you have a longer view. Yeah. yeah. And I could never understand how anyone could write like, oh, this wine's going to age 10 years. It drinks best <laughs> in 10 years or five years. And because I didn't have any data on it. No, and, I certainly don't. I mean, have, not having been a winemaker, I definitely don't. But, but there are people who do not make wine who know, who can also tell how long to age it, or they can make an educated guess that's yeah. fairly accurate. And I find that amazing. It is. It's yeah. truly amazing. And, and, and it's fascinating how they gain that palate mm-hmm. to be able to make those, those predictions. Yeah. It's a so. lot of wine. It, it takes a lot of drinking, smelling, tasting all. I mean, I can't, I can't express quite how much it takes to get to a point where you can identify that kind of stuff. And you have to keep it up too. You can't just slack for six months and come right back to it. It takes time. It's like a muscle that you work out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I still top every barrel in my cellar myself. Mm-hmm. And 
it's sort of like checking the, the, the pulse on all the barrels of mm-hmm. wine. And I pull the bungs off the barrels and with my flashlight, I look at the surface mm-hmm. and then I, I sometimes, you know, smell the barrels and then I'll listen to the barrels if I'm mm-hmm. still have activity going on. Mm-hmm. And, listening. I've never thought of that. Yeah. yeah. You're listening to the little pops and wiggles and yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, right now I'm listening for spring chickens, which is any wine that went into barrel back during harvest time. And then I've already blended my 2022s yeah. and they're back in barrel, mm-hmm. but they've been reconstituted as blends in a way that hopefully will aid some of the fermentations and finishing mm-hmm. both primary and secondary mm-hmm. fermentations. So the conversion of malic to lactic, sometimes I have Zinfandel or Grenache that's at uh, the acidity levels. So high mm-hmm. that the bacteria that that converts malic to lactic mm-hmm. can't grow. Yeah, yeah, and it's s- like hampered. Yeah, so by just bumping it, by blending a little bit of Syrah yeah. into it, it brings it up. And then when springtime comes, I get a couple degrees. I let the cellar come up a couple degrees, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they come back to life, and the wines are cool to listen to. And right now I have about I don't know, two different blends that are going off. That's so funny. You should do like a recording project, a, a recording of, you sh- totally should. I, I I'll swear, bring my mic up. I swear I can tell the difference between alcoholic fermentation and, and ML. Really? Yeah. I don't, can you describe it? It's like, a, well, it's a distance between the bubbles. And, and so mm-hmm. it's like the, it's like the rate of, of bubble, like, yeah. like alcoholic would be like a high pop rock. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And whereas ML sounds more like pop, pop, small. Yes. And How it's just really, you know, you listen to it. And you, a lot of times I kind of can taste and know what's going on. Like mm-hmm. you, you taste the barrel and you go, oh man, it's got a little, little sugar in there or, hmm. or hmm, still tastes like a lot of, a lot of acids in there. And then there's mm-hmm. also aromatics that come with all those processes. Yes, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about, you were talking about your farming practices, um, sustainability for sure. But I really like that you do, um, I mean, you look at regenerative and organic and biodynamic. You look at all of those. But then you also give yourself the flexibility to kind of do whatever the land and the vines need in any given moment. So you're not beholden to any one of those practices ever you have not gotten certified on any of those, yeah. even though you know them all and you practice them as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, I would say I, I don't practice so much biodynamics as, as I am, uh, I've read Steiner's books and, mm-hmm. and, you know, for bought all the, um, the Calhorn. Uh, yeah. The BD 501 and, and <laughs> gone through, gone through doing compost and, and mm-hmm. diatomizing and looking at the, the ideas behind it. But I just never could get fully on board. I felt like it was too much of a religion mm, for me. Mm-hmm. And and for the way I see the world is that, you know, Steiner Steiner created these methods in the in the twenties, in the nineteen twenties. And I just don't know if they're the be all end all of of farming. I believe that any positive motions in farming are positive for the land and positive for your crop and positive for the wine. And that's like the biggest thing that I get from biodynamics is, is that the stone that's thrown into a, a 
pond mm-hmm. creates a ripple. And even beyond the, the ripple that you see with your eye, there's still a constant effect. So a lot of the, the principles of, of small movements, small inputs create larger change over time mm-hmm. is all like positive vibes. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's what I get from, from biodynamics. Mm-hmm. Organics sits on another level uh, for me. And it's, my biggest issue with organics is tilling of the land at times yeah. and erosion and also not necessarily compensating for, uh, our biggest resource of water management. And yeah. in, in other words, you can farm a large crop organically and have a lot of irrigation going into it, but is it really sustainable mm-hmm. with that much of a resource going towards growing grapes, which to me still is a luxury product. It's a luxury product. I and, totally agree. And too often it gets, it gets hmm. put into it's for everybody. Yeah. But I think that if we look at the history of grape growing and we look at, at grapes being, you know, maybe at one point they're for the Royals and then, and then they were traded and they're in your village. And then all of a sudden they, they became, you know, world worldwide. Mm-hmm. Wines, you know, wines originally were grown dry farmed. Mm-hmm. around the There's world. There's no choice really. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that was why they were partly luxury. And mm. I think, and today, you know, maybe people will probably put a hit on me for this one, but I just think <laughs> that, that it should remain a luxury product. I think that using water, mm. uh, abundant amounts of water to grow a product for profit, that's a luxury product is not probably the best thing. I have never, and, ever thought about that before. I have, I mean, I've thought about those things independent of one another, but I've never made the connection that, you know, I've worked for lots of wine marketing people. I've done a fair amount of it myself. And there's this big push to say wine is for everybody. You know, it's not a snob product. And you're not saying that. You're, you're not saying that it needs to be a snob product. Anybody can appreciate wine for sure. But the fact that it requires so much water for everyone to have access to wine, we have to irrigate beyond our means. Yeah, but to, to carry a crop that's that's large enough. Yeah. On on the you know because that's how you drive the price down. Mm-hmm. The, the price per ton of grapes, the volume of grapes you're producing drives in and keeps the bottle price down low. Mm-hmm. And as long as you keep forcing that market and and the consumers demanding a bottle price in the fifteen or twenty thirty dollar yes. range, well, that's not a one ton per acre crop. Yeah, that's right. not a two ton per acre crop. That's, that's economies of scale. And yeah, it really, it, it throws it off for me. And mm-hmm. my, as we talk about agriculture, my, my biggest problem with that is as you extrapolate out the, the resource of water out to a hundred years and you look at the mm-hmm. timeline of California winemaking, we're mm-hmm. super immature. Yeah. Yes. You know, let's 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 have seventies. Yeah, let's have uh, four centuries on us, mm-hmm. and then let's see if that that program of irrigating grapevines and producing and holding the price down is the right method. And I don't know if it is. And mm-hmm. and yeah. you're just saying you don't know the yeah yeah. I, I can see the Farm Bureau and everyone coming after me on these uh, no. comments. You mean but those six I, people who listen to this? No, <laughs> <laughs> no I don't think anyone's going to have. It's that. just. <laughs> It's just, you know, I've, I have the cherry vineyard that I've, that was our college wine Mm -hmm. and it's dry farmed head trained Zinfandel. It only produces about a half ton per acre, 
but it's magnificent. Mm-hmm. It is dark, dense. Zinfandel also leads it. Like, it's so good at that. It's yeah. so, so good at that. No, I'm not saying that Pinot or, or Cab or whatever wouldn't be, but Zin is just particularly good for that. Yeah. I mean, I know there's, there's producers up in Oregon that are, that are dry farming. Pinot. Pinot. Yeah. yeah. And so you have to grow where you can grow things, right? Yes, and yes. and you have to either plant to the spacings that allow it or figure out how to farm within within the means mm-hmm. that surround you versus bringing in necessarily, you know, high amounts of artificial um, mm-hmm. irrigation. And yeah, uh, someone one time asked me, uh, you know, keep your drip line out there in case, case there's there's a drought because then you can add water. But if you have a drought, aren't you running out of water in the ground too? Mm, Right. (laughs) So I've never understood that. And while we've had a great rainfall year this year, no, this is an anomaly. Anomaly. This is not normal. We still have to look down the the road and, but uh, in agriculture and farming, what I've done over the last, I started planting my own grapes and, designing vineyards uh, in 2005 from the ground up mm-hmm. no formal training just mm-hmm. learn by doing and in 2005 i planted grenache and syrah different spacings different clonal selections uh learning mm-hmm. what farming methods am i going to apply to them what training methods am i going to apply to them i planted head trained mm-hmm. on a 10 by 10 spacing i planted a vsp at seven by four I changed rootstocks as the plants uh, came down into deeper soils and went devigorating. Just as, a, just as an experiment? Experiments. Yeah, learn yeah. by failing is what yeah. I like to call it. Yeah, it's <laughs> learn by, by failing. And, yeah. It is, right? And I and then in 2008 through 2009, I, I planted more grapes and got a lot of red blotch virus and mm-hmm, learned, mm-hmm. learned by failing on those. I because, heard about that, yeah. Because I had one foot in the grave on those vines. Yeah. And that, I nursed them along for years and years. The vineyard mm-hmm. looked like crap and, and, but it made great wines. Yeah. Isn't that funny? It is really funny. <laughs> it's one of those, it's, it's a, the, like the, the death gasp, the death throes. Yeah, it's like it's, putting out the greatest stuff. Puzzling. It puzzling, is puzzling, but, but it teaches you something about nature and about, and about how resilient uh, vines can be. And yeah. also how, they produce some of the most beautiful things when they're under the most stress. And that was a good learning experience. I just pulled out most of those vines that I planted in that 08, 09 years because it was getting more difficult in the drought years to, to farm them. And they're just, you know, struggling and struggling and, and every, other vineyard guy would say, Oh, you just need to add more water and add more nutrients to them, mm-hmm. you know, to get them to mm-hmm. see around their, their virus. Well, any and, plant person would say that. Yeah. Any plant person would say yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. No, no, no. But I mean, I'm, that's not to say that it's wrong, but we can't think, we can't think like that. We can't afford to think like that. I don't think you can in, in grape growing. I mean, olive trees, I'm growing all yeah, dry. I want to ask you about that. And grapevines, I've been pushing them and, and pretty much for the last Oh, I guess, uh, what, what year are we? 18 years have been doing experiments mm-hmm. and going more vigorous rootstocks, different mm-hmm. clonal selections, different spacings. I have now a lot of 11 by six. I have 10 by six spacings of head trained vines. I have things that are back to seven by four and eight by four. Do you keep those head trained 
one's very low. I bring them up. I bring them up for an so ergonomic. Hot, so, sure. oh, oh, you're thinking about the user. You're thinking yeah. about the person in the vineyard. Yeah, yeah. So we bring them up to about uh, it's about thirty inches, mm-hmm. and that's about where the top of the head is. And then we'll start spurring them out lower, but we're constantly kind of bringing the lower spurs up to make what we call the bus wheel or the bus steering wheel. Yes, it's like a. And the more mm-hmm. we can round it out, what I've found is I've made the rows tighter is that they're more of a, of an oval shape. Mm. So I'm kind of keeping a little bit of form yes. in the row. So I don't end up uh, outside in my tractor driving lane. Yeah. And when I end up out Getting. there with, especially with Moved, those shoots don't bend very easily. Yeah. And so if you're on a crawler tractor driving up and once a shoot sucks under your, your track, Goodbye. it, you're going up and you're like, Oh, I really should stop. Mm-hmm. But you have to shut everything down on a steep hill because you have to, you can't just get off with the parking brake set. It's too dangerous. Really? Oh, oh yeah. so you got to be ready to go completely. Yeah. Ready. yeah. Once you commit on these hills, mm-hmm. the only way to stop is really to shut down and then re-engage the clutch. So you're engaging the, the transmission mm-hmm. and the parking brake is set mm-hmm. and now the tractor won't move, but, wow. and then you can get off the tractor. Yeah, but you do not want to do that. You want to minimize that, I'm sure. Yeah, so you learn to drive. You learn to to, to kind of S-turn up the yeah. up the vineyard row sometimes, and you know which plants. Mm-hmm. Grenache, on the other hand, will bend, and you won't break mm-hmm. off spurs. It'll just be a, a really easy... Um, okay. Oh, there's my kitty. Yeah. That's oatmeal. Oh, awesome. Oh, so good. Um, is, have you seen... What have you seen the most difference of in terms of your customers appreciation of different varieties. I mean, I know you do blends um, and that's your, that's your focus, right? Yeah. Is the Rhone blends. But in terms of individual varieties, cause you probably have a host of a few of those. Um, how do you see people's interest in those? Do you see any changes happening? There's always changes. Uh, having mm-hmm. been at the school of Kenny Volk and doing 32 varietals. Yeah, really back in the day at wild horse, it was, uh, doing Syrah, Grenache, Moved, Tempranillo, Grenache Blanc, Pique Blanc, Viognier, Zinfandel, Chenin Blanc. Hmm. And I'm probably missing a few. Tanat. You have Chenin up at the end? Chenin's interplanted. It's, uh, oh, there's really? about 200 vines up at Cherry Vineyard. Oh. It usually is in Cherry. And I always forget mm-hmm. to put it on the label because we call it the, the Mahiko, the magic of the, mm-hmm. the vineyard block. We pick a couple picking lugs every year. Mm. It's usually riper uh, than the cherry Zinfandel. Yeah. So it works as kind of a, a, a bird food mm-hmm. out there. Kind yeah. Of, kind of the birds kind of, if there's any <laughs> birds up at Cherry Vineyard, which is a two and a half acre vineyard on a 400 acre piece of land. Yeah. The birds tend to gravitate to the Chenin Blanc That's a little crazy. earlier. Periodically, we pick it. It equals a few hundred pounds. Yeah, on a given year. Okay, but you've done you've done varietal Chenin Blanc. I've made just for a you keg. Yeah, is it any two. good? It's great. Oh, is it? It's really good. Because I don't think of I think of it as being too warm up there to do Chenin, but I'm. That's the thing about it. It's that it heat, it uh, ripens up fairly quickly, and if we're not ready, you got to go. get on it. Yeah. And and my biggest reason for not picking it most years to make white wine is that if I'm picking under a macro bin, mm-hmm. I don't have a press that can squeeze it. Mm-hmm. And going to bladder presses and and like little old school presses is where I would have to go with that. That's and a lot of work. it's yeah, it's just sometimes <laughs> I'm. I'm 
I don't know. I don't have enough energy in me no, to get not started that with that type of project no, no, no. To, to get 15 gallons. If I'm yeah. picking whites elsewhere and yeah. I'm going to be squeezing, let's say Viognier or, or Grenache Blanc and the fruits still out there and looking good, mm-hmm. then absolutely we'll go over there and we'll, we'll, we'll quickly pick it and, and bring it in and co-ferment it. Yeah. That's uh, it just fun. depends on the season. But what's happening? So back to, sorry, I distracted you, but what, how are things changing in terms of like consumer understanding of these varieties? Oh, I think, I think everyone is on board with Grenache, Syrah yeah. and Moved. They're really into blends. They, they can see the, the advantages of blending and not being chemically manipulated. So not adding tartaric acid, not, not sitting there and fining the wines. So I'm not stripping out tannins and I'm not sure what your listener knows completely, but Some, you know, yeah. the fine, fining is stripping, stripping out, uh, tannins out of the wine and, and kind of clarifying Making also it clear. Yeah. yeah. You can do different, different proteins. You can drop through wines to grab on to, to negatively charged molecules or like swordfish, right? Uh, you can do Isinglass. What is it? Isinglass, which is uh, fish livers. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So it's so it's high protein, right? Yeah, so yeah. so and it has a molecular weight because the proteins have a certain um, length chain, right? And yeah. that will then, because it's positively charged as a protein, mm-hmm. it will grab onto a negatively charged molecule and like magnetics, it just they attach it to each other, and because it has weight and mass, it drops to the bottom, and you can take the rest of the wine off. It's it's a common method. You can also use egg whites in there. And then the wine looks that it's that like star bright. If you're, if we're talking about say a Chardonnay, it's got that clear, clear, clear color, but I, I love unfined and unfiltered wines. Okay. I really do. Um, I mean, I'll take it all, Yeah, but yeah, I think with the right in the right setting, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. I agree with that. I just get tired of the phone calls. (laughs) Oh, that, about what? Oh, this oh, is like cloudy. What's wrong this with is cloudy. This yeah. has this and that. So, with the white mm-hmm. and the rose, both contrarian and pale flowers, I've gone back to. I just started cross flowing it a few years back mm-hmm. because it looked like you know orange juice. It had pulp in it, and <laughs> I had to. I'm finally... sure people wondered if it was flawed. I mean, you can see where they'd be like, "This wine is something's wrong with this." That's what they. That's the first impression, I think, yeah. and it's not. It's yeah. just. It's just when you're unfiltered on a white it's very it pops out at you pretty quickly yeah and a little cloudy yeah but nothing to, nothing to hurt you no for sure no so i you said contrarian and i forgot so i was working for the wine marketing agency that became makers and allies eventually it was called proof wine marketing okay and we i was tasked with naming a wine and i can't remember, i think it was maybe for um i think it may have been for Oh, it was for Anthony Bazzano. <laughs> That's right. He 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 was developing Folkway, and he we I, we were tasked with getting him a name. And I thought Contrarian was a great name actually for him and Lino. Yep. And we found out, you know, we did the TTB search, and you stinkers took that name, Contrarian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like within six months, I think, of us trying to figure that out. It's such a good name. Is that, would you describe yourself that way? I I definitely, yeah, Yeah. I can be very contrarian. (laughs) But it's not a bad thing to be contrarian. No, No, I just, I I look at the world and, you know, I'm constantly trying to find how opposites are and Mm -hmm. and kind of it's part of studying science Mm -hmm. and having a viewpoint of 
is that really how it works? Maybe, maybe I need to look at it from the other side mm-hmm. of the puzzle. And, and that's, that's where I, that's where I see myself. And, and I do that in farming too. Absolutely. Like, you know, right now we're pushing, I, I'm jumping around a bit and mm, I hope you don't okay. mind that. No, not it's at like all. in farming, I've gone to no-till mm-hmm. and no-till is a fabulous method. It is super cool. I know that this is one of like the tenets of your farming. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's pretty new in my farming. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not, I'm not the, you know, early adopter whatsoever. I, it took me a long time to figure it out. And I finally have kind of f- figured out the puzzle mm-hmm. that was, was kind of nagging at me for years and, and I couldn't get myself to go to it. I'd gone to, you know, undervine different methods to, I'd done hoeing undervine. I'd done weed knives undervine, Clemens undervine. And it wasn't really till COVID happened that I was at home in the vineyard and had nowhere else to go in the world. And I loved it. I, <laughs> I hadn't even realized what mm-hmm. I'd built at that time. And I was sitting there looking at everything and it the biggest part of the puzzle is how do you go no-till without herbicides and not and how do you how do you change the the flora of your of your the species that you have growing amongst your vines and uh, this is going to sound crazy but it was hand weeding it was basically going foot by foot of a vineyard block and you know is it scalable to do a thousand acres? No. Mm-hmm. Is it is it gardening your mm-hmm. vineyard block? And so going every foot and looking at the plants there, looking at invasive species, looking at, at what plants go dormant by June, July, mm-hmm. and thus aren't competing against your vines. And so you can go ahead and go to a mowing system yeah. and keep all, everything there. And so the only way for myself to achieve that was to grow seeds of mm-hmm. the plants that I want out there talking about like grow seeds of um like cover crops or actual of of cover crops yeah okay of cover crops have annuals and perennial grasses on your property going through the whole cycle and keeping them in that cycle so i'm not going through and overseeding or doing tilling nothing yeah yeah no tilling and then resetting and planting a cover crop Mm -hmm. instead it was more of a method of looking at all the grasses that currently exist Mm mm-hmm all the invasive species that I need to get rid of Mm -hmm. and preventing them from going to seed and creating Mm -hmm. a game against reducing seed counts on, on start thistles and mustards and, and taproot plants that Mm -hmm. don't go dormant that every time you mow them, there's, they're, they're still in the ground. And, and some would say, you know, taproot plants are great for breaking up the soil. And I agree and disagree with that. Yeah. Like lesser of two evils. Which one is it? Because they flower all the way into, into, into fall and you're constantly working them out of your system. And if they're in your vine row, you have to, the only way to get rid of them is really to spade them out and Mm. pull, pull the whole root out. And so we've gone through and taught everyone in our crew how to identify and go. And so you hand weed, we hand weed, yeah. But then we end up, it's one of these projects where over, Oh, it's super hard the first year. Yeah, I believe Second it. year is pretty hard. Third year is getting better. Fourth year, even better. So you're in fourth year right now. 
you know, 2021, yeah, fourth year, getting better every year. And, and then you're able to kind of attack areas and Mm -hmm. say, okay, we're going to do this whole area here. If we, and if we do pull out all of, let's say you have an infection of star thistle or, or uh, milk thistle or something like that, Mm -hmm. you do have to come back in and seed. Mm-hmm. If you don't have enough cover crop within that area, you do have to come in and, and throw down some seeds mm-hmm. to, to fill the void. And this kind of brings us to niche theory, right? Where yes, right. You create a void in the universe. And, and something obnoxious will fill it. I yeah. love, I read yeah. that. I love yeah, if, that if you so don't, much. Yeah. <laughs> I just love the word obnoxious. So if you create a void, if you do that, something obnoxious is going to fill it. I just think that's hysterically yeah. funny. And and totally it's the path of least resistance. It's if you look at any construction site where they've gone in and they've graded the whole construction site and the project hasn't started and you look at all the, the weeds that grow on that construction mm-hmm. site, it's not growing grasses. It's not growing no. pretty flowers. No, it's always the it's most chaos. obnoxious yes. weed and it's overtaking. And, and too often those weeds that are growing in there have seeds that are seven year seeds. Yeah. And, I didn't fully understand the seed bank mm-hmm. and realizing that every time you go and you disc, you have this, this seed bank that's down there. That's yeah. that you're rotating back up through the layers and the next year you're germinating again. So when you go to, to no till, as long as you reduce the seeds that are on the top layer, you're not having the seed bank. That's, that's maybe three to four inches subsurface. And this year we're seeing a more pressure because of the amount of rain. Yes. I feel like I have more sure. germination that's that, that came from a, maybe a little deeper uh, seed set, mm-hmm. but you end up slowly reducing, reducing that population of plants mm-hmm. and your issues and ideally reducing the amount of tractor passes, reducing the amount of, of, your erosion for your, sure. Oh, this, yeah. So little erosion on mm-hmm. all the properties this year because of this. And mm-hmm. even last year we did try the the one vineyard that I'm going to come back to is cherry. We did try converting that. This is the second time we tried converting it to no till didn't work out. It's just super hard. It Why? Is, it's all just, it has a very high uh, population of invasive species on mm-hmm. it and it's really difficult to get it fully set and because it's a two and a half acre vineyard in the middle of 400 acres yeah there's a lot of seeds being blown into it constantly yes, a lot of and, inputs i'm sure and i just for some reason we just can't get it to go as easily as the larger blocks like the mm-hmm. the ones that are 20 acres in size where we're kind of working our way through them and and have different methods it's just mm. I don't know what it is about that block. It's, it's, <laughs> well, they're like people. I mean, they have their own fingerprint for sure. Yeah. What they're willing to do and not do. Yeah. Um, there was one other thing I was going to ask you about. Oh, so what I hear from you a lot is like the you're attempting to live within whatever your means, whatever that might be. So I love the idea of hand weeding. Yeah, it takes a ton of work. But you only have as much space that as you can, as your crew can handle. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you're not doing it over a thousand acres; yeah. you're doing it over twenty. Um, that brings home what you're talking about with water: the ability, you, you know, that you can only farm as much as you can farm, given the the resources you have, whether that's human resources, whether that's natural resources. Um, and I think that in California specifically, but the U S in general, we really try to cheat that system a lot. 
Um, now, am I guilty of drinking those kinds of wines? Totally. I mean, look, I, I have food in my there's I have food in my fridge that's probably farmed the exact same way. It's just not sustainable. But recognizing that we're not living that we're cheating the system, I think, is a great first step at fixing it. Yeah. Um, but it also makes me wonder if you are willing to live within your means that way, you are not going to strike it rich, right? You, you, there's, there's an economy that comes with it too. You have to be mindful of like, you're never going to be the, God, I don't know, the shied vineyard, you know, that's not to imply that they're rolling in it, but they're rolling in it. You know, yeah. there's a reality check there. Definitely. Yeah. I've always wanted to have a family business that, was you know multi-generational whether or not that will happen you know it's not up to me it's up to my kids really and what they they can go do whatever they want to do and and i'm be happy to teach if they you know ever so choose Mm -hmm. the idea that i think we have to look at for this type of farming operation is the price points are higher on the wines the mm-hmm. the the costs are the labor costs are higher yes especially in the early days of converting a piece but I'm, what i'm beginning to extrapolate out is that if you do this for 10 years mm-hmm. that all of a sudden now you have a very dominant cover crop out there yeah. that reduces your labor costs on that yeah and so then we can focus more on just grapevines mm-hmm. and managing the vines and not having to, to worry so much about the ground and mm-hmm. everything underneath. And we run our, our tractors up and mow it and, and under vine mow and, mm-hmm. and can continue in that series. Yeah. So there's a price that comes with it. I mean, my cost of farm is, is really high. Yeah. Um, a lot of people say that's crazy. I can't do that. It's, also the difference between being a grape grower and being a winery owner, grape mm-hmm. grower mm-hmm. that really changes. And that's something I've worked hard to get to is to own and operate vineyards and kind mm-hmm. of, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword yeah. uh, philosophy. And that's how a lot of my flavors in the wines I think come about is this relationship of, of agriculture and bringing in, the fruit into the winery and having mm-hmm. these good positive vibes on it. Mm-hmm. And even, even, you know, successes and failures out there yeah. that I have, it still tells a story mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's what I want to bottle up is yeah. that story. Yep. And too often I can go end up in a vineyard that in my early days where there wasn't any passion in the vineyard, mm-hmm. it was farmed as just a agricultural product mm-hmm. and, if it doesn't have passion and feeling, it's hard to put it back into the wine that I bottle up because I can't just bring it to it. And I say that any vineyard that right now I farm about 95% of what we, what we bring in Mm -hmm. that other 5%, a lot of times I have to verify who's farming it Mm -hmm. and either end up on that vineyard and have, Mm -hmm. you know, some of our own inputs in order to bring it into our house so that it feels somewhat like an LC wine. Yeah, right. And it's a very important part of, of winemaking for me. Yeah, control. Control is yeah. important. As yeah. much as you can as much as you can. Yeah. Um we didn't talk at all about the olive oil. Um 
can you tell me in a nutshell how that's been for you? Because that's a different process, right? It's yeah. So olive oil, we do olive oil, and also have some honeybees and stuff. And I think it's just being full circle and having everything from gardens, from vegetable gardens to mm-hmm. olive trees, and producing olive oil. Uh, we're not processing it on site. I don't have a I don't have a processing yeah. unit, so it ends up at Kyler Ridge. Yeah, and they'll process, but we get a usually I don't know half day to a day there. Mm-hmm. Um, have a couple picks a year. The project started about ooh, back in 2007, mm-hmm. 2008, began putting olive trees in. And that was a whole other learning experience. Totally. You know, putting some trees in, in frost areas and realizing that tree didn't perform, but Arbicania maybe performed down yeah. there and Mission performed in that colder. Frantoia's up higher and mm-hmm. kind of moving all the, the trees around. The trees that, that uh, weren't performing in cooler areas, I actually just went out there with a mini excavator and, and picked them up out of the ground and, and put, put them in, somewhere else, put them in a trailer and took them to another property. And yeah, you know, they're, they thrive. It's, it's mm. kind of hard to kill a, an olive tree. You see this one out here, that yeah. olive, I mean, it really is. It's been, I don't think we could kill it if we wanted to. Yeah. We just popped it in the ground. I think we put a hose on it for like 20 minutes, half an hour. And we've never done anything else for that tree. And it's just as happy as can be. That looks great. I love olive trees for that reason. They're also just so pretty. Yeah. We have about two acres of olive trees, probably about 400, maybe 400 trees out there mm-hmm. right now. And it's, it's another crop to, to farm. It's not as labor intensive. We mm-hmm. go through, we do a thinning. Um, earlier this year, we did a thinning. And then now we're sitting... Um, we'll go through and, and do a white fly control, which is an organic mm-hmm. method where we have a, um, I'm trying to think of what it's called. It's a, um, totally missing the name of it right now, mm. but it has molasses in it and mm. it attracts the, the white fly that gets inside the, the meat of the olive. And so we yeah. go through and care for that. Mm-hmm. Also do our neighbors to make sure they're down yeah, on it too matters, and understand. Yeah. So if neighbor has about another 20 trees down there, so we make sure um, that we take care of those. And Yeah. The pests don't, um, they don't respect no. <laughs> property lines. <laughs> no. And he gets olive oil out of it. And yeah. it's, it's a good, it's a good partnership there I love it. for that. And I think it's, it just adds to the full circle of owning a land being mm-hmm. polyculture. Yep. We also have oak trees that we manage, and we manage about a 40-acre oak forest, hmm. which was a lot of work, and I had no idea in 2000 when we bought the property where Lenny Coletto is located how much work was going to be involved, and it's just trees falling. Yeah. Trees fall all over the place, and if you don't pick up the wood, it sits on the ground, becomes a fire danger. Yeah. So we're constantly out there and picking up, picking up the wood, and, and hmm. we burn the brush because there's no other way and it's either going to burn under my control or burn (laughs) out of control control. because I can't let it sit out there for, for, you know, 50 years and and just Mm -hmm. prevent forest fires. I have to actually move the material out. So if a fire ever gets into the forest Mm. where we're located, that it moves quickly under the canopy and doesn't jump up into the the trees. Yeah. You guys have to think about fire in a way that most people don't have to. Fire is such a real, it's such a real thing in those, in those fire heavy years, the hot and the wind. And yeah, Yeah. we're a little out of the habit right now with all this rain. 
Yep. But um, it's very real. It's totally real. Yeah. There'll be a lot of dry grass later this year. Yes, right. So it's yeah. just all part of the part of the way nature works. And yeah. I always like to look at, you know, in burning, I always like to look at the history of, of burning in California and go mm. back into, uh, let's go to, you know, 1200. Mm, mm-hmm. Let's go to third. What happened when a forest yeah. fire burned here in California? It burned all, all summer long mm-hmm. from a lightning strike. And no one put it out. No. And the and and nature worked in this cycle. And today today we prevent fires to the point where there's a lot of material that's built up mm-hmm. everywhere. Yeah. And you either have to collect it, burn it on your own, or a fire has will one day you mm-hmm. won't be able to keep it away for you know two centuries. Right. And it scares me. Yeah. I still, we're making California sound like this just awful place. It's just such an abundant, wonderful place, really. It is. Um, but it has its, you know, it has its needs. It needs to burn. I get that. I just don't want it to burn right here. <laughs> oh, I, that's, yeah. As you know, Mr. Oak Forest Management, you understand for sure. I don't. I I, I, I don't want it to burn. I, yeah. I, I cannot afford. And you so totally what, what I What I have under control I take care of and mm-hmm. it's we spend almost uh probably 45 days a year doing oak tree work yeah on 40 acres so about a about a day an acre wow yes six seven people out there building burn piles and waiting till till you know the season opens and as I see it, it's going to go as carbon into the atmosphere, either, you know, under my control or out of control. And, yeah. and I'm trying so to, so let's keep it under your control, trying to explain that the, yeah. the science and the, the, you know, matters neither created nor destroyed just yeah. changes form Yeah. type type. It's crazy that you're saying that to me right now. Just this morning, I was explaining that to somebody, to a small somebody, yeah. uh, that yeah, matter doesn't disappear energy doesn't disappear. It's all somewhere. Yeah. It has to be. It's yeah. a rule. So yeah, that's, that's funny that you said that. Yeah. Okay. Well, if it were your last day on earth, here's the hardest question ever. If it were your last day on earth and you're like, God, Lenny Colota is so great. My family's healthy. They're safe. Everybody's, I have such wonderful friends. I've done good work here. What would you eat for your last meal and what would you drink with it? And who would be there? Okay. And you can have anything you want. Who would be there? What would I eat and what would I drink? Wow. This is a, you know, I always, I enjoy cooking in the wood, wood fired oven and mm-hmm. I would be cooking. I would be making bread. Mm-hmm. I would be uh, probably having steak and mm-hmm. like a, a filet and chimichurri, <laughs> you know, out of, mm-hmm. out straight out of the garden and, and a tempranillo and, or something like that. Yeah, just you know, just I would probably have CDP Chateau de Pop, and oh. and who would I have out of it? I don't know. I I'm so house palated that I know all my own wines. And <laughs> I then love that when, you admit that when everyone asks me like, "What wine would you drink?" and you know, out of uh, early wines that I really fell in love with were were Tompier it was uh, Domaine mm. Tompier out of Bandol and. And I definitely would have a bottle of that next to me. I would have probably um, Reyes hmm. and maybe Pagao. Hmm. Just, I can't really 
pin it down. I'm, I'm pretty open on what I'm drinking. Mm -hmm. There's not a single bottle that I don't like. I find something positive in Mm -hmm. every bottle that I consume. But which ones have the most positive things? Early on, a lot of it was research. It was figuring out what I wanted to do as a winemaker mm-hmm. and then realizing that you're growing grapes in Paso and you're making Paso Robles wines. You're not making, I'm not making Rhone Valley wines. I'm making Paso Robles wines. Right. And, and, and the tools that I have in front of me are the varieties that I'm growing on the soils that I have in the climate that I have. Yeah. And as those come through, it's my palate that I'm blending for. Mm-hmm. And so I've, for the most part over the last decades, I've been blending by myself with the idea that subjectivity uh, of my own palate is um, kind of creates this, this uh, focused flavor versus a democracy of, of mm-hmm. people tasting mm-hmm. creates a cooperation or, or a, um, that's the word I'm looking for. Hmm. You know, you, you meet in the middle, and when you meet in the middle, doesn't always end up with the most exciting oh, flavors. Compromise, compromise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you compromise that that the flavor of a high acid maybe in there and bright fruit, or you go to a bigger, fuller bodied wine, and when you're compromising things like that, it you end up with this wine that's just yeah. kind of middle road. Yeah, for sure. That's not very exciting for me. Yeah. So something exciting and expressive. As far as people, my whole family, I'd like my whole family there Hmm. and all my friends and everyone that's, that I've tasted with over Hmm. the last, all my career. It's like, I think about, I think about all these, uh, barrel tastings I've done since all the way back to Justin winery and taking, taking, individuals groups through the cellar Mm -hmm. and showing them these early wines, these, these new wines and talking to them about, about the grapes growing and, and how they all come together. And, Mm. and that experience for me is probably one of my favorite experiences Mm. I have Mm -hmm. is sharing, sharing wines. Mm. That's awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. For coming, for sharing the wine and the olive oil. I yep. cannot wait to play with all that. Yeah. And um, yeah, for sharing your experience. Cool. Yeah, Thank you. you're welcome. Thanks for carving time out of your day to listen to Consume. If you like what you hear, it always helps if you rate and subscribe to the feed. To learn more about my guests, see their photos, and connect with them via their website or social media, visit letsgetconsumed.com. You'll also find a newsletter sign up if you want to visit for me in your inbox every now and again. Until then, I'm Jamie Lewis. Cheers. Cheers.